Hello, I'm Michael O'Toole, Crime Correspondent with The Star. Welcome to another episode of The Star's special podcast series focusing on the trial of Jerry the Monk Hutch. As you will all be aware by now, Mr Hutch is on trial at the non-jury special criminal court in Dublin. There he is charged with the murder of David Byrne at the Regency Airport Hotel in North Central Dublin on the 5th of February 2016. That's a charge he denies. Two men are also on trial alongside Mr Hutch. Jason Bonney and Paul Murphy are not charged with the murder of David Byrne. Instead, they are accused of helping a crime gang carry out the murder by providing it with cars. Like Mr Hutch, they deny the charge and all three are now on trial. And I'm now joined by the Star's chief reporter, Paul Healy, who was in court today for one of the most dramatic days so far of the trial. And I have to say, I'm slightly jealous, but Paul did a great job. Hello, Paul. How's it going, Mick? It was a great day, was it? Uh, as you said, one of the most traumatic, probably the most, definitely the most traumatic day of the trial. We've been talking about Jonathan Dowdall for, was it two months now? Um, so we finally heard his evidence today. He was brought before the Special Criminal Court. Um, I, I don't really know where to begin, to be honest with you, but maybe we could talk about just, you know, the atmosphere um, a little bit because it was quite surreal. Well, one thing that that, interest, that that interested me, look, I, I was in, you, you were away. And oh, by the way, props to Kieran Bradley for filling in for both of us. He did a great job, but the old gang is back now. <laughs> so you, you were away and I was away. But uh, when, I, when I was there, the trial was in Court 11, which is the what you and I would call the Special Criminal mm. Court. But I understand today it was moved to Court 17. I think that's on the, is it on the next floor up? Yeah, it's the next floor up, the fourth floor uh, of the CCJ. And do I have any idea why it was moved? Yeah, so the reason why it was moved, I think it's just purely logistical um, and, well, also security matter, I suppose, for the Gardaí. Um, basically, the layout of Court 11, it's quite a big court. And that's why I suppose they sat the Special Criminal Court case there up until now. Um, but they don't have a jury entrance, as far as I'm aware, in Court 11. So they moved it up to Court 17 because there is a, an area that's usually in, in a typical criminal trial preserved for a jury and it has its own separate entrance. And Jonathan Dowdall was brought up through that entrance, which is on the opposite side of the courtroom to where the accused man, Jerry Hutch, was sitting. So the two of them basically don't come into any kind of close physical contact at all. I presume that's, you know, just also from a logistic, logistical point of view, Dowdall doesn't have any contact with anybody in the room in terms of, uh, you know, he doesn't have to walk around the crowd at all. He just comes out his own separate entrance. So that's why that was done. But it is... um. Just something that I noticed immediately when I finally got into the room. It's a it's it's a smaller room, um, without a doubt. And we took up two rows of seats. There were two more rows of seats behind us, um, and there was an awful lot of guardy in the court, uh, apart from ourselves, the media. So there wasn't really a whole heap of space um, for the massive crowd that was there. And I mean, there was a huge crowd there. Um, the level of interest in this is just unprecedented, really. Um, and there was, I mean, when I got there. So that the case starts at 11. I got there at 10 o'clock um, and there was already just a huge queue of people just sort of all lined up trying to get in. So when I've been there and I know you and I have both been getting messages from an awful lot of punters, which we welcome asking, you know, is there public access and that sort of stuff? And, you know, that's no problem. But when I was there, you know, when you were away, you know, you were, there were probably maybe 10 maybe 12 members of the public who were there. How many members of the public were there today, Paul? Oh, gosh, I, I didn't count. I, I, but I, like when I was there, um, maybe 
40, 50 of it. I'm sure there was in excess of that because eventually they opened up a second courtroom to watch the proceedings uh, on, a, on a video. And that initially wasn't the plan. In fact, we'd actually been informed in the morning that there would not be an overflow court, um, which to me was extraordinary because there has been an overflow court, a flow court on other days. If, if, if any day required an overflow court, it was today. But they did actually open one up eventually. So I have no idea how many people were in that room. But I can tell you they packed as many as they could eventually into the room we were in. And was it difficult for you to get in? I understand that there was a, a, the media were effectively called in. So you had to queue up to get in. Yeah, well, like previously, I've just walked in. I've said my name. Uh, they, they've, they've kind of kept a list of the journalists that are going into court every day. So they, they've, some of the guards that are there have kind of gotten to know our faces and um, kind of just wave us in. But on this occasion, it was far different. Uh, plenty of guardy around. And the guard that was actually um, overseeing uh, letting the journalists in was... Um, I don't want to say he was being strict. He was doing his job, but he was just uh, he was being uh, very cautious and careful. He and he decided to read through a list that he had. Um, I don't know who provided him with this list, but he read through a list of names, and he your name was mentioned uh, before mine. Obviously, uh, <laughs> obviously before yours, which is the really important thing. Yeah, that's, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's the most important yeah. aspect. I, I meant I, I was going to loudly exclaim, "He's not here!" But uh, anyway. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. But uh, can I just ask Paul? Um, so when I the, the days I've been there, yeah. you know, we walk in through the main entrance of yeah. the CCJ, and there's a, a guard armed support unit jeep is parked up there. Yes. And then when you go inside, there's members of the public what order. You I would call the rats guard, but they call the public order yeah. unit. What was there more security than usual today? Yes, there was a lot of, uh, shall we say, plain clothes members of Angarda Shiakana, and you could see that they were wearing earpieces. That's the first time I've ever seen that. I couldn't even tell you what unit they are, um, what rank they were, but there was plenty of them around uh, looking like Secret Service, really, and just hanging about the, the building and in the courtroom. Um, I've, you know, that's extraordinary. We haven't seen that to date. Um just in terms of getting in, they read through all the names and we eventually got in. So there were 14 of us on that list. But I think eventually they squeezed more like 20 something journalists into the room, uh, piled into the room and, and sitting there getting ready for. We didn't know what we were getting ready for. Uh, and then we started to uh, hear some stuff that nearly indicated we weren't going to hear from Jonathan Dowdot at all, which... Just before we go there, can we just maybe, because we haven't done this before, uh, and I was conscious of this when I was in Court 11, which is the same thing. Can we just talk about the, the, the geography of the court, who sits where, and, 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 and that sort of thing? Yeah, so the makeup of the court is that the journalists uh, are sitting in the front row in the centre of the room. Uh, as I said, this is a smaller courtroom, so we actually took up two rows uh, and in the front row, um, there is like a little kind of a desk for us to put our laptops or, our, you know, our, our notebooks onto. But I, I was sitting in the second row, so I had my laptop on my lap. Behind that, then there were two, if not maybe three benches for a public gallery. Um, and then to my left, to our left, uh, is is a um, is the section where Jerry Hutch and Paul Murphy and Jason Bonney sit. So it's a dock that just sits separately on the left hand side. Straight in front of us then is where uh, the, the barristers uh, to our left is Brendan Gretton, the senior counsel for Hutch, um, and the other defence for Paul uh, Murphy and Jason Bonney. And to the right then is uh, prosecuting counsel Sean Gillan uh, and, and, and his team. And then directly in front of them are the three judges, Miss uh, Justice uh, Tara Burns and the two, uh, the two judges who are with her. And, and one other aspect, there's obviously, and people probably aren't aware of this there is also a, a pew 
which was reserved for the family of David Byrne. And that's sometimes, I'm guilty of this, you know, they're a family. And you know my views on this, that there's nobody deserves to be murdered. We don't have extrajudicial killing in this state. So David Byrne, whatever was said about him, whatever he did, the man was a victim. And they have a special pew reserved for them as the victim's family. Yes, they were seated at the back row. Um, It's worth noting as well, uh, the family of David Byrne have been in for pretty much every day of the trial, or at least a member of the family. But this is the first day in a while uh, that both of Mr. Byrne's parents, uh, James Byrne and Sadie Byrne, uh, one of their daughters, Melanie, I believe, and also the uh, partner of David Byrne, Kelly Quinn, uh, they were all in attendance at court. So it's obviously a huge day for them as well. They were obviously uh, apprehensive and waiting for this day as well. And, and you know, and we some look. I mean, we have to do our jobs, we're journalists, but we we do sometimes lose sight of that. You know, they're a family, and they've lost a loved one, and they're they're sitting through what can be very tough evidence. But on to today. So Jonathan Dowdall, the man who is being assessed for the witness security program, the man who is giving evidence on behalf of the state. So I take it there was a sense of anticipation in the courtroom before he came in. Just just talk us through what happened before he came in. Yeah, well, as I said, we were we began to hear uh, some information that uh, made us think we're not going to hear from him again um, because uh, the court opened. Uh, Jerry Hutch had sat down at the last minute, um, no sign of doubt all yet, um, and, and the three judges came out. And the the prosecuting counsel Sean Galan uh, indicated that there there was an issue. Um, it was further discussed then by by Brendan Gretton, senior counsel. He he had been made aware of this as well, that apparently Jonathan Dowdall he'd been brought from Limerick Prison up to the court's building, uh, but they had received the prosecution had received correspondence from a solicitor acting for Mr. Dowdall, uh, basically saying uh, outlining that he had a number of preconditions and uh, issues that he wanted to raise before he gave evidence. This ha- came as complete. You know, out of the blue for for both sides, um. But Sean Glenn basically was saying, essentially saying, this isn't really my problem. Uh, I got this, and I'm raising the court's awareness about it. But it's, I mean, what am I supposed to do about it? Basically, uh, we are where we are. He's supposed to give evidence today, um. But but he has a couple of things that apparently he wants to address. So Brendan Grahan actually said that, um, he was setting forth preconditions. Uh, which he says was extraordinary in and of itself. And apparently he had a list, a whole list of complaints that he wanted to address before he gave evidence. Uh, but Miss Justice Tara Burns wasn't really having it. Uh, she was basically saying, he, is he in the building? Yes, he's in the building. Well, then we're going to hear from him today and we're going to go ahead with matters. Uh, it's not a matter for the prosecution and it's not really a matter for the court either, she said. Um, so... Lo and behold, then we we were going to have the evidence of Jonathan Dowdall, but first he had to be brought before us, and um, and and a a member of Angarda Shiakana then was going to give evidence in relation to the witness protection program, which he's still applying for. Um, so and you were not allowed. My understanding is that that senior officer did give evidence, but we're not allowed. That there is an order that we can't identify him or we can't name him or her. I don't know. It wasn't there, so. Yes, uh, it's it's a, a detective superintendent who can give the rank, but um, we, I'm not going to identify the guard because we've been asked not to. But after all the hullabaloo of getting the public into the court, uh, the public were then told to get back out again because this guard can't be identified. Um, so that's what happened. And uh, there was a very sort of brief back and forth uh, between the Garda and, and, and Brendan Grehan in relation to the witness protection program and how it operates. Um, 
And basically, he was asking, is there a like-for-like like situation where um, the pers- a person who's put through the Witness Protection Programme, uh, are they given the same level of wealth that they had before they went into the programme? Um, is there a like-for-like? Like? So they get the same amount of, the same, say, property worth the same value or something like that. And essentially, she said, in general, yes, that's the case. Um so I mean, you might be able to speak a bit more about that. No, because I remember I, I did a story just at the start of this about the witness security program, and I thought it was really interesting because I mean, we all thought that they were, you know, it would cost the the state, you know, whoever, not just any witness, not not just Jonathan Dowdle if he is entered into it, it was all going to be like a million quid, and he'd be resettled every on all this sort of stuff. And I was I I was lucky enough to know somebody who was central. In a previous iterate life, I suppose he was central to the witness security program, and we did a story about this. He told me that he ex- he would have expected uh, such a case to cost the state about a hundred thousand euro. And one thing that he did say is, look, it is very much like for like. So if you've got a four hundred thousand euro house in Dublin, you get a four hundred thousand. But even then, what they do is the, the guards would or the up the, the the program would rent a property for you for a couple of months. So it's really it's after a couple of months in this new country, wherever it is, we're not allowed to say where you're you're effectively on your own. But the other interesting aspect about it was because I know there's been lots of stuff about this about America, and what was told to me was that no foreign citizen has ever come into the witness any witness security program in America. So it's not as if from Ireland, Britain or anywhere, the Americans don't accept you. So it'll be somewhere else, but who knows? But I just thought it was really interesting was, you know, it doesn't cost that much and, you know, it's like for like and you get a few months rent, but then after that, you're on your own and the protection for that person is not a matter for the guards because they don't have jurisdiction abroad. It's for the, a matter for the local police force. Mm. It's very interesting. Um, I mean, as I say, this was very brief evidence. I think the purpose of it really was just for the Garda to state on the records that no matter what Jonathan Dowdall said today, uh, in the case at all, it's not going to have any bearing on his application, which which as of yet, he's not being admitted to the Witness Protection Programme. And, and the Garda did say um, that that will have no bearing. No matter what he says today, uh, it would have no effect on, on any application that he had for the Witness Protection Programme. Um, I'll just circle back a little because I, I, I Jonathan Dowdall was obviously brought out at this point which in and of itself was very dramatic. Everybody was just looking over to the right, watching this fella coming out um, into the jury section and sitting in the foreman's chair. Uh, he was suited and booted, so he was wearing a, a, a navy blazer and a blue shirt. Um, and I hope it's okay for me to say this, but I, I, I think it's reasonable that anyone in his position would be quite stressed and quite nervous. And he certainly looked it. Um he did not look at Jerry Hutch. I looked at him quite a bit. He didn't look at Jerry Hutch once, as far as I could tell. He kept his eyes in the direction of the judges uh, the entire time, even when he was under cross-examination. He really didn't look at uh, Sean Galan at all, uh, bar the odd question, but he mostly kept his eyes darted directly towards the judges. But Jerry Hutch was staring right at him, <laughs> and that was noticeable, because that's the first thing you want to do when you see him coming out. I wanted to look... Uh, where he was looking and where Hutch was looking. I think everybody was doing the same thing. And how did Jerry Hutch look? Did he look 
you know, what was his demeanor during this? I mean, I can't, I don't, I can't read his mind, but I, I, I did notice that he was staring right at him. So, I mean, you know, I'm, you wouldn't want to be a body language expert. I, I'm not, but uh, as I said, Jonathan Dowdall seemed to very deliberately not look in the direction of Jerry Hutch at all, whereas Jerry Hutch was kept his eyes fixed on Jonathan Dowdall. And I understand that uh, Jonathan Dowdall, as you say, he was in the, the the jury box, but he wasn't alone. There were people with him. Yeah, he had, I think, I'm going to say five prison officers flanking him. Uh, wow. Gardy as well. Uh, so, you know, he was well uh, guarded, so to speak. Um, were they armed Gardy? Do you know? Uh, I think somebody said that he saw two armed Gardy. I couldn't say. I Oh, I okay. So there, there were detectives probably, yes, was it? Yeah, plain clothes. Oh, okay. Yeah. All right, fair enough. Fair enough. Okay. Um, yeah, I mean, there was quite a large guard of presence in the courtroom, and as I said, there were there were members of Guard Shikana who were playing clothes, who were had who had earpieces. So, I mean, quite a high level of security in the room. But just before we get on to the the evidence itself, what was the was there a an air of expectation in the newsroom in the in the, in the courtroom? Was it tense? It was quite tense because nobody really kind of knew what's going to happen next. I mean, we'd already heard about this issue that he had a list of complaints. So I thought, right. He, is that going to be addressed now? Is he now going to read out this list of complaints? Uh, are we going to have to come back at another time because he's not going to give evidence? But it just wasn't mentioned again. Like, we just got straight into it. So I don't know whether it was communicated to him in any way that we're not going to deal with your complaint or whatever. But, I mean, the judge, as I said, dismissed it earlier. And um, that was it. We, we, got, we were going to get straight into the evidence. Uh, prosecuting counsel Sean Glenn uh, stood up uh, and he started to question uh, Jonathan Dowdall and it, it started off you know um, quite uh, normally and, and innocently just asking him to confirm very basic details about who he is where he's from um, coming from a family of uh, mother father brother sister uh, being raised in, in Ballybock in the inner city um, and just details about how he grew up and then eventually details about you know, how did you come to know the Hutch family? And he said that uh, he knew the Hutch family through his mother, that his mother knew Jerry Hutch through Jerry's wife, um, and that they, they had known each other through the market stall business, and that uh, their ch- some of the Hutch children came over to their house, and he got to know uh, the likes of Gary Hutch, Patrick Hutch Jr., um, and Derek Delboy Hutch. Uh, so kind of grew up around these people and got to know them. And I think two of them worked on the on the on the stall in town, uh, on the mother's stall. So that's how he got to essentially know the Hutch family. He he said, um, I mean, even like it was just fascinating just to watch him. I mean, we even like you know how many times you watch a witness get up on the stand and swear on the Bible. I mean, he you know it's just he seems so nervous, but he's there with his hand on the Bible, swearing to tell the truth, nothing but the truth. I mean, even that was just fascinating to watch. Um, I, I'm sorry. Just um, I mean, I, I I've done this, and you, you, it is extremely nerve wracking standing up and taking the oath and sit. I mean, I, it, it is. It's it's terrible. But did he did he get more or less nervous as he as he went on? I it I mean, it's difficult to tell. As I said, he seemed tense the whole way through. That's the best way I could describe. He just seemed very tense and not making eye contact with anybody other than just facing the direction of kind of just. Um, I think he was thinking quite quite hard on what he was saying you know i mean he, he was answering the questions no problem uh he he was offered a, a jug of water so a, a jug of water was brought to him um i did notice that throughout he was speaking 
um he did occasionally stop to take drinks of water um not in any particular interesting place i suppose any of us talking for that length of time even myself now i'm looking i should have brought a glass of water um so you know particularly when you're nervous you're probably trying to 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 uh take breaks in between um but as I said, we just got into his background, you know, and how he got into the electrical business, uh, starting Dowdall Electrical. And he gave uh, Patrick Hutch Jr. an apprenticeship uh, and Patrick Hutch uh, worked with him for a period of time. Uh, just to remind people, Patrick Hutch Jr. is the son of Patsy Hutch. Um, Patsy Hutch's other son, Gary Hutch, was murdered in, in the murder that started the whole feud, basically. Um, we've heard a lot about Patsy Hutch throughout this trial uh, and again today. Um, so, and Patrick was also charged with the murder yes. of uh, David Byrne, but you know through various issues, including the death of Colin Fox, there was a nolly prosequi entered. So, I mean, you know that you know that's it. The state has effectively dropped the charges or shelved the charges against Patrick Hutch. So, so he's an innocent man. He is an innocent man. Uh, we heard a lot about him today uh, and what Jonathan Dowdall thought about uh, his alleged involvement in the Regency Hotel, but I'll come to that. Um, as I said, we, he talked about his relationships with the Hutches and then it just it just escalated from there. I mean, if you stopped to breathe for a second, you've missed like a, something crazy, you know, and it really did. Like, I'm trying to live tweet which I don't know why I agreed to that. But there you go. I'm trying to live tweet and also type down what's happening. And it's like, it was just a mile a minute. Like um, we, we started. That was, that, that, that was, sorry, that was the same when we were, when we were doing the, 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 the bugged conversation between uh, uh, Jonathan Dowdall and Jerry Hutch. And the, there is no argument that it is them that this, the, the court has heard that. But it was, I, I like an idiot decided I'm going to tweet this. Right. And after about a minute, I went, ah, oh, here, good luck. It was almost impossible. So I, I feel for you, brother. It, it's extremely hard and people don't really understand. I know this is terrible about journalists giving out, but it was a hard graft. So uh, I've been there, done that. So fair play. Anyway, go on. Well, I just, I tried to tweet the highlights, so to speak. Um, and, and, and even now, I'm I'm probably going to miss out on a lot of what he said. I'm going to give you the, the meat and potatoes of it, but I, I'm sure there's lots more that I'm, I, I'm not going to remember i'm giving to you pretty raw like i mean i'm only just out of the court really but um we the first kind of bombshell that we got into was in relation to the murder of gary hutch so september 2015 he was asked about his knowledge of the murder of gary hutch um and, and like he opened it he opened it like talking about his knowledge as to why it happened um you know he said i was told that the kinnahans believed gary was an informant and that certain things he said were going on in spain and the Kinnahans were blaming Gary. Um, he said, that's what I believed at the time. Um, and then he, he, he kind of went back just to say, well, I didn't actually, I haven't, I didn't know Gary Hutch anymore at that point. I hadn't seen him since he was 10 years old. And just a bit of context to this, uh, Daniel Kinnahan's mother died, I think it was late 2014. And there was a, a big funeral in Dublin. And if you remember there was a graffito, a piece of graffiti on a church, I think it was a Russian Orthodox church in Dublin, and it said, Gary Hutch is a rat. Now, we, as ever, journalists are very lucky if we know 10% of what's going on, and we just did not realise the import of that. But it does show that there were uh, tensions. And I mean, even going back to the whole feud, 
one of the things that I was told and one of the things we were always briefed about was that the Kenhins did believe. Who's it's not for us to say if he is or isn't. We can only tell you what the Kenhins believed. And we've we we believed this for a long we were told this for a long time that the the, the, the feud started because the Kenhins believed that Gary Hutch was an informant. So that has been out there and we've all been aware of that. So it was just interesting for him to to say that, I have to say. Yeah, but he, uh, this, he goes on like this for a while. He keeps saying, I was told this, I was told this, I was told this. And I'll just, I'll come back to all the things he was told. But uh, eventually, um, uh, Changeland said, and you were told all this by Patsy Hutch. And he said, yeah. So he was allegedly told all this by Patsy Hutch, who he said he knew from the age of 17, 18. He said he knew Patsy Hutch really well. Um, and that they had a bit of a, a kind of a, a friendship, a relationship there. So that explains that uh, alleged relationship. Um, but he says, talks about the murder of Gary Hutch and, and why he says he was told it happened. Um, he said that he was told that Patrick Hutch Jr. was accused of trying to kill Daniel Kinahan in Spain. Um, and I was told he didn't do it, he said. Uh, so Patsy told him that, he, you know, his son didn't do it. He wasn't involved. And I'm going to give context for that. That is the August 2013 attempt on the life of Daniel Kinahan in his uh, villa in Estepona and whoever the gunman was we have no idea but the gunman thought Daniel Kenahan was coming to the heart of the house when in fact it was an innocent boxer called Jamie Moore who suffered very serious injuries to his leg and he was lucky to survive but that my yeah, understanding is that would be about that yeah well I mean Dowdall did, uh, did actually say that he only learned afterwards that it was in relation to the shooting of a boxer he said so but at the time he understood it this particular way he said uh, but he said as a result of this, he was told that the Kinnahans were looking for a sum of money, €200,000, uh, to settle this dispute. Um, and, and he said that the, the Kinnahans also wanted to show an example of Patrick Hutch Jr., so they wanted to shoot him in a punishment shooting, he called it, in the Drumcondra area. Uh, and he said his understanding was that that happened and that a family member personally drove Patrick Hutch to a location in Drumcondra where he was shot. Um, and he said uh, that he was told that the person who shot Patrick Hutch was Daniel Kinnan. Now, this is really interesting. John, Paul, Paul, we journalists, this feud has been really interesting for the sort of propaganda war. And there has been, we have been told an awful lot of things from all sides. And that's great. And we try and filter it out and get to the truth. But I remember probably 2017 being told that Patrick Hutch was shot in the leg in Drumcondra, down an alleyway in Drumcondra by Daniel Kinnan that he flew in especially to, to carry it out and I was completely sceptical of it right and then I remember sitting in Patrick Hutch's trial when there was reference to someone being shot in the leg in Dublin and I went oh ho but that is really sensational so five years ago we were told about Daniel Kinnan shoot, allegedly shooting uh, 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 Patrick Hutch now I don't know if that's ever it's ever been said publicly about Daniel Kinnan because we, it, there was plenty of media coverage about a shooting of someone on the Hutch side, but it was never Daniel Kennan. We were told it, but just legally you can't. But I just thought that was really interesting that that was said today in court. Yeah, that's certainly the first time that has been heard in a public forum. You and I were aware of it, but it's different to hear something in court. Yeah, but I mean, it's just stunning. Like uh, this case is just like just to hear. I mean, as I said, we we need we didn't know that, but to hear those words out of Dowdall's mouth was just like. And I think I found, we found ourselves sort of going wow to each other every five seconds, like because it's just crazy. But anyway, I'll, I'll move on to just because we haven't even got halfway through the evidence. Um, 
you know, basically, supposedly this punishment shooting was supposed to happen. The 200,000 was supposed to be paid, he said. But uh, that didn't settle things. Apparently, he said around Christmas 2015, there was an attempt on Patsy outside of school, he said. Uh, I'm not familiar with that now. I don't know if you remember an attempt on Patsy outside of school. No, 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 that was really interesting because, you know, we broke the, the attempt on uh, Jerry Hutch in December in Lanzarote in December 2015 it was New Year's Eve New Year's Day 2015-2016 and that was a big story when we broke it and it was it was really massive actually but I, I had never heard about Pat. now we know that Patsy survived numerous hits afterwards and we know that we've all written about this and have spoken about this several men were caught a couple of hundred yards away from Patsy's house and the Doc B and the ERU foiled several hits but I never heard about an attempt on Patsy's life you know, before the regency, shall we say? Yeah, and and, and Dowdall said at that stage it was getting out of hand, uh, and that um, Patsy had, had the Hutches had essentially come to him, asking him was there anything he could do uh, in terms of trying to quell the feud, uh, stop the violence from happening. So this would have been the end of twenty fifteen into the start of twenty sixteen. So about January twenty sixteen. Dowdall says he was approached by the Hutches to try and broker some sort of a peace uh, with people he knew from Republican backgrounds. Uh, and Dowdall seemed quite at pains to stress at this point. He said, I want to clear something up. I, I do wonder whether this is what his um, complaint was or his issue was that was addressed earlier because he said he wanted to address uh, that, you know, it had been said that he had gone to speak with uh, people in the provisional IRA, provisional um members and that's been stated already and he wanted to say no i didn't meet with anyone provisional he said it it was dissident people um it it wasn't in any way provisional so he was at pains to state that um that he didn't meet with anyone in the provisional ira that's significant yeah well i mean that's you know people wanted to jump on that and make an issue out of that uh, political issue i know that's that's something maybe for another day but, uh, I think I might have a, a possible, sorry Paul, I think I might have a possible explanation for this, just from my experience of covering the special. So obviously people are brought before the special and they're accused of being dissident Republicans and everything, but they're not, they're accused of being members of the IRA, right? But that can mean anything from the continuity IRA, the new IRA, the real IRA, you know what I mean? To the Garda Shia it's all just the IRA, right? Uh, so I wonder, has that got something to do with it? It's just, you know, there's loads of different dissident groupings and everything but you're not the charge is membership of Oakley and Heron membership of an illegal it's always membership of an illegal organisation styling itself Oakley and Heron or the IRA right and I think that's that might be one possible explanation for this that in the law it's just the IRA yeah I mean he did it Dowdall did a lot to downplay sort of who he was meeting and what he could do at that point in time I mean you know he said that he he was approached but he wasn't gone on the idea I think he said and um, that he didn't really know. <laughs> he kind of basically didn't really know anybody, but he would try to talk to people that he kind of knew or, or that he might have known uh, about. But he, but he was, he seemed to be quite honest in saying I didn't really know anybody. So he said there were innocent lives at stake. So he'd do what he could to try and stop the feud. And he said at that point that he felt it probably could have been stopped. That it was that that it was at that point. Uh, something that could have been resolved. So we're talking January, early, just before the Regency Hotel attack, Dowdall thought uh, that he might be able to help resolve the feud. So so I'm just going to interact for a wee second, if I can, Paul, just about when they talk about it getting out of hand, just off the top of my head, these are the things that had happened up until 
January 2016. Obviously, there was the, the murder of Gary Hutch. Then we know there was an attempt uh, on the life of Daniel Kennehan at a box, another boxing event in, in West Dublin when his bodyguards saw a car acting suspiciously and they threw a rubbish bin at it and got Daniel out of the way. And that was in November 2015. Almost immediately, I think within a couple of days, a man called Dahi Douglas was shot as he walked his dog in Cabra. Now he survived that shooting, but we know in July of 2016 he was shot dead in, a, in his wife's shop in South Inner City, Dublin. And then in, uh, the, the Jan- in December 2015, they tried to murder the, hut- the monk. But also in December 2015, they shot a man called Darren Cairns, shot him dead uh, in a pub in North Dublin. <coughs> now, excuse me. He and Dahi Douglas were both friends and they were both shot effectively because the Kenyan cartel blamed them wrongly for the November attempt on the life of Daniel Kinnan. So, you know, whoever was saying that about it getting out of hand, they were right because there had been a lot of incidents there that really in, a, in quite a short period of time, it was quite concentrated. Yeah, I mean, it, it escalated further, obviously, from the Regency, but it, it, that it's important to contextualise that because that really shows how much had already happened at that point. Um, was it really resolvable? Who knows? Um, but moving on from that, uh, we got into the evidence about uh, the alleged meeting that Dowdall had um, handing over the hotel keys, uh, which his father uh, then would use to book the hotel room in the Regency uh, on the on the night of the 4th, so just before the Regency incident. Um, and, and Jonathan says that uh, he, he was contacted by, so he was on his way back from the north from his so-called peacekeeping mission uh, with his father uh, when he was contacted by Patsy Hutch saying, did you book the room yet? Um, he's saying, basically, did you book the room yet? And he was saying, no, I, I didn't, I didn't, I, I didn't book the room. So he, they went back home, his father picked up his passport and then he drove his father to the Regency Hotel and he, we know all of this evidence in relation to the booking of the room. That is what got Patrick and Jonathan Dowdall uh, convicted of facilitating the murder of David Byrne. But he says he sat out in the car while his father did that. Um, but I want to get to the meeting and probably the most crucial piece of evidence of all, which is this uh, meeting with Jerry Hutch in the days following the Regency attack. Uh, we've heard about this before, but to actually hear Dowdall talking about this moment or this alleged moment uh, was was just fascinating um so he he says that he he met with Jerry Hutch on the Monday following the Regency incident and then he went into a park in the Whitehall area opposite a church parked his uh, land cruiser up went in through a little gate and he says Jared Hutch he kept calling him Jared Hutch I mean, we keep calling him Jerry but he it seems he seems to be kind of known as Jared uh, by by people yeah, in the inner city, he's known as Gerard. It's us who call him Jerry. Jerry, yeah. but the the local community calls him, and they always have called him called him Gerard. Well, uh, he was asked then, was he alone? He said, yeah, he was. He was standing there uh, alone, uh, waiting for him. Um, yeah, so he said that Jerry, which was quite agitated, and he was asking him about, did you, did you see the papers, uh, specifically the Sunday World newspaper, that now infamous photograph of flat cap Kevin Murray and the man in drag. Uh, he said he had seen it, uh, and and he he said that Jerry Hutch was in a panic. He said, and he wasn't like any other time I seen him. Um, uh, so Jerry asked him, could he could you contact uh, people that you know in the north? So allegedly looking for again some sort of peace keeping deal. 
and he thought Jonathan Dowdall might be the man to do that. Uh, and and Dowdall then said that Jerry said that it was quote him and them at the Regency Hotel. He said that Jerry seemed upset and he was not happy about shooting that young lad, David Byrne. Uh, he says that Jerry Hutch was not happy about shooting that young lad, David Byrne. Uh, Sean Galland then asked, uh, then asked Jonathan Dowdall, did he say who shot David Byrne? And Dowdall said that Hutch said it was him and Mago Gately. Okay, Mago Gately. Uh, we know who we know we know who Mago Gately is, and 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 we might provide some context to that because obviously names are just said in court, and then we move on. But we should probably just he, explain. James Mago Gately. He'd be close to the the Hutch family. I think it's fair to say. We know that he is currently this uh, the, the, the proper his property in Dublin is currently the subject of an application by the Criminal Assets Bureau, who allege it was bought by the proceeds of crime. He and his uh, partner or wife are fighting that. That's before the courts at the minute. But we also know that in May 2017, the Kinnan cartel tried to shoot Michael Gately. In fact, they did shoot him in uh, a garage in North Dublin. He was wearing body armour and he survived. We Actually, I remember that day. It was May and I thought he was dead. But he survived because of his body armour. Uh, and a couple, uh, two people, I think, have been convicted at, including a man called Keelan Smith, uh, who'd be a, a, a very dangerous criminal. But we also know that there was another attempt. So that was one attempt by the Kinahan gang to kill him. We also know there was another attempt in April 2017 involving a man, an infamous Estonian, called Imre Rakas, who flew into Dublin on the orders of Daniel Kinahan to murder uh, Michael Gately who was living in Belfast at the time and he would uh, essentially there was a very significant undercover operation by the Guarded Drugs and Organised Crime Bureau and the Emergency Response Unit and they raided a house in the Blanchestown area of West Dublin and they found Imre Rackus and there's no doubt that that was an operation Imre Rackus was going to head up north he'd been given details of the car and everything that Gately was, I'm worried that Gately was living and that was an attempt a plot to murder Michael Gately that was foiled by the Gardaí here. So there's two attempts, two very, very serious attempts on Michael Gately's life. So he's obviously someone of very strong interest to the Kinahan cartel. Yeah, certainly the Kinahans wanted him dead. Um, this is the first time, again, in any open public setting uh, that somebody's name, uh, that Michael Gately's name has been associated with the Regency Hotel. Again, obviously, this is Jonathan Dowdall's allegation that Jerry Hutch said this to him. Um, Mago Gately, uh, James Gately is not before the courts. He's not charged with any offence. It's important to say that, but uh, obviously he's been incriminated here to a degree, uh, at least allegedly, uh, about his involvement. Um, but anyway, Dowdall, he went at some length talking about how Jerry Hutch was agitated and said a lot of innocent people are going to get killed in this and that he needed his help uh, to try and resolve this. And Dowdall says he didn't give him any firm commitments and he left the park. Uh, he said at that point, I didn't intend on doing anything. He felt um, regret that he had been told what he'd been told. He didn't want to have, he said he didn't want to have been told all that information. He said it's, uh, you know, it's, um, I, I can't remember the quote now. Um, but he, yeah, he said it was like knowing the location of buried treasure or something like that. Um, it's not something that it's not information he wanted to know. And he felt, uh, he got worried at that point about the booking of the hotel room in the Regency. And he thought that is going to lead back to me. And so he got worried about that. So he was sort of initially thinking, honest about that, thinking about himself and how it could end. And obviously it did lead back to him in the end because we know what happened. Uh, but at that point in time, Dowdall was worried about himself. 
And that's that's essentially what he told the court. That is the most significant evidence that was heard. I mean, I could go on at length about about more what happened after the lunch break. Um, you know, for example, just briefly, there was, you know, uh, he was asked, was that the last sort of interaction that you had with Jerry Hutch? And he said, no, that um, when, when they were in Wheatfield Prison together, briefly, uh, they had an interaction. Jerry Hutch came into his cell and, and they talked, but eventually they fell out, as he said, for obvious reasons. Um, and and there, were, there was no more interaction between them. But he says that Jerry Hutch expressed concern about CCTV footage of himself following immediately following the Regency Hotel, so on the 5th of February. And he says that Jerry Hutch was worried about CCTV footage showing his movements. But he said that Hutch told him he deleted his own CCTV, but he was still worried about neighbours' CCTV and basically uh, what that might have picked up. Um. So we were going to get to the point where then, you know, uh, we were coming to the end of Jonathan Dowdo's evidence and what was going to be heard, uh, prosecuting counsel John Galan basically said, I want to play a specific portion of the 10 hour tapes and ask him questions about that. Um, and that uh, raised an objection from the defense. Brendan Graham was concerned. He said he didn't know what portion of the tapes was going to be played and he wasn't privy to exactly what Jonathan Dowdo might then say about that. Uh, and, and he was worried about that and, and he said he didn't really want to stop proceedings but he, he had to raise his objections to that so they came to sort of an agreement that they're going to get a statement from Jonathan Dowdall about that specific portion of the tapes so that there's no real I guess surprises or um, you know he didn't want the witness to be offering uh, commentary on it he said uh, Brendan Gretton without knowing or preempt being being able to preempt what he was going to say the judge did actually say well depending upon what he says it might be in your favor but he still kind of raised the red flag and said this could be an issue i wasn't made aware of this in advance i'm operating in the dark so i have to stop things here uh, he, he did I mean, he was quite honest uh brendan grattan said oh i was getting i was quite looking forward to cross-examining jonathan dowdall today but i have to you know raise my concern so things were sort of stopped uh early and we weren't expecting that so about half two today things were stopped but i mean you, as you can see, I've been going on and on and on. We've heard quite a bit today anyway, so I think there was a bit of relief from the reporters in the room uh, that we got a little bit of a reprieve. And so they're back tomorrow? Yeah, they're back tomorrow. Uh, Jonathan Dowdall will be back in court, and I presume we will hear that statement. We're going to hear a portion of the tape, possibly, and then we will have Brendan Grehan, uh, the defence counsel for Mr. Hutch, cross-examining Jonathan Dowdall, um, which, which should be very interesting. But we don't know how long that could be a day. It could be half. An, we, we we have no idea how long. Could that be the rest of the week. Be. I mean, he already indicated at the start of the trial that he had a, that he would be cross examining uh, Mr. Dowdall for quite some time. He's a lot of questions. Obviously, he's going to question. Uh, you know, um, is he a reliable witness? Um, he's already indicated that that there are many examples uh, as to why he feels Jonathan Dowdall can't be trusted. A word that he says can't be trusted. For example, the pills issue alone. Uh, that the tapes, everything he was saying on the tapes, he was on pills. So he was lying etc so I mean he's got a lot to grill him on Okay so tomorrow should be fun did you uh, I think it's a great privilege to be a reporter in a case like this I can remember you know covering cases like the Gilligan the Joe Riley Mickey McKevitt even and even Graham Dwyer a couple of years ago uh, you know it, it's, it's you get a real sense of occasion and it is, I think it is a real privilege to be a reporter in a case like this. Did you, did you feel that? Did you enjoy it? Yeah, I don't want to sound overly dramatic, uh, but I would say it's probably the most interesting court case I've ever covered, and I, I do feel privileged to 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 cover it. Yeah, and um, 
has been fascinating to date and I've learned so much about the process of the Special Criminal Court, as has members of the public. And we've gained insight into how, you know, the National Surveillance Unit works and the inner workings of, of the of the Gardaí and the state. And it's all coming under scrutiny. And, you know, people might have feelings and criticisms uh, about maybe how this trial has operated to date. Uh, that commentary will come. But uh, it's a fascinating process. It's not like any other criminal trial. Um, so yeah, I'll probably remember it for the rest of my life in terms of covering it. Yeah, as, as I say, it's fascinating uh, just to, just to be sitting there, even just as an interested party. Forget about being a journalist. Uh, it's just it's just very interesting. And what I like about this, because it's this special, you and I have a chance to contextualise things and to explain things. So I hope, I think we've done a pretty decent job explaining things, but just even, you know, there's always a context for everything. And because it's this special and there's no jury, we've got a little bit of leeway. So it's been very enjoyable for me. But anyway, I, doubtless we will be back tomorrow with another one because I think we might, there might be several pods this week, depending on what happens in, in the trial. But whatever, uh, Roller coaster day tomorrow. Okay, we'll wind it up there. Paul, thanks for that. Thank you. And thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll be back probably tomorrow with another one.